or maybe they have never been, I would encourage you to invite them to come with you because the reality is uh, the majority of people will come to church with a friend if they're invited. And um, in fact, I have some friends here with me. They regularly go to church when they're at home, but they're with me this morning. And no, you're not allowed to ask ask them to tell you any stories. (laughs) All right. But uh, although they do know quite a few, um, uh, they're my oldest friends and I do enjoy them. Um, We have Awana coming up this week. And uh, I would encourage you, if you are an Awana leader, to please stand. Uh, Rob, you too, man. All right. All right. Um, If you're an Awana leader, remain standing. Remain standing, please. We're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for you. So if you'd please remain standing, we'll pray together as a congregation for y'all and for me too. Uh, God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ministry that you get accomplished through us, your servants, as we serve you in Awana. And Father, I pray uh, for these Awana leaders, and for me too, as I will be one, uh, for the opportunity to share the gospel in a clear way, in the midst of a whole lot of fun that we have uh, with games and snacks and other things that we do um, 50-foot banana split parties. Father, I pray that most of all that Jesus Christ would be exalted and the truth about his death and resurrection clearly proclaimed and explained. That many of these young people would come to faith in Christ in a real way and would um, step out of darkness and into the light of the sun. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And Rob, if you'd remain standing, please, for just a second. Uh, Those of you who don't know, uh, this is Rob Stouffer. And Rob has been involved uh, in our ministry here for a while. Um, But Rob is going to serve alongside Rick Velock this year as co-commander. So that's a big thing. And... And, uh, and we're excited about that. We're excited to see what God uh, is going to do. Rick, as you know, is retiring in about 12 months uh, and probably moving to somewhere warm. Uh, in about January, you all will be wanting to join him. But nevertheless, uh, Rick will be uh, probably moving next year. And we wanted to make sure that we had a good transition plan in place. We really feel like we have one Uh, in place with Rob, and that's going to be a great thing. So I would encourage you all to pray for him and to encourage him and to help him to whatever degree possible as he has a lot of uh, new responsibilities to take on. So thanks, Rob. Appreciate you serving, brother. Um, This morning, we're going to be looking at the building of the tabernacle. Uh, We're going to start into that long section on the building of the tabernacle. It starts in Exodus chapter 25. So if you want to make your way there. But as you do, just understand this. That this was a portable structure uh, with some furniture and so forth in it made in very specific ways. Uh, And the whole point of the tabernacle, indeed the whole point of the Bible, if I want to just back up just a little bit further, the whole point of the Bible is that God wants to draw near to his people and have them in response to draw near to him in worship. Uh, If you want a a big theme for the whole Bible, that's one. 
And if you remember all the way back in Genesis at the early creation, what do you see? You see perfect environment, and you see God walking in the cool of the garden with his people that he has made, right? And as you watch them do this, you go, wow, that must have been amazing. Walk in the cool of the garden with God and to be in perfect relationship with him. And then you read Genesis chapter 3, and you see the fall into sin, and the people cast out of the garden, and you see a cherubim, a flaming angel that we're going to see this in this chapter too. Uh, this flaming angel set in place to guard the way to the tree of life so that men and women could not get back to the tree of life and be forever separated from God, having eternal life, but still in their sin. And so God says, I'm going to cut you off from the tree of life until I'm able to restore you to relationship with me, and then you'll have access to the tree of life. And in fact, you see it crop up again. At the end of the book, uh, God recreates the world, and he makes a garden again for us to live in. And the tree of life is there, bearing 12 crops of fruit every month. Um, I dropped out here. I don't know what happened to the mic. But uh, in any case... um, it bears 12 crops of fruit every month. And, and at the end of the book, it says, and God will be with them as their God, and they will be his people. That is God's objective, that he would be able to dwell with us as his people, and that we would be with him and have him as our God. And the whole uh, thrust of Scripture, the whole story of Scripture, is of God creating and then a fall, and then a redemption, and a restoration of relationship with God in perfect environment once again. Uh, that's, the, that's the story. That's the big story of Scripture. And what you see in the tabernacle is the beginning of a partial restoration of that, of God coming to dwell among his people. And the tree of life is there. And I'll show it to you. I want you to open your Bible, if you haven't, to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold and silver and bronze blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you Concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you, so you shall make it. Now, God longs to draw near to his people and to have them draw near to him. He wants to live among them. And in order to do that, he's going to make, where are they living right now? They're living in the wilderness in what? Tents. And so he says, make me a tent. And I'm going to live among you. But it's going to be a special kind of tent. It'll be better than all of your tents. And, it will, and it'll have furniture in it that you need to make. And you need to make it according to what I've shown you. 
and God's presence is going to be in their midst. And he says, now in order for you to make this tent for me to live in among you, you're going to have to take an offering. Now, in our last, you know, last week we looked at the worship service of Israel, and the only thing that they didn't do was take up an offering. And so this week they're going to rectify that and take up an offering. They're going to take a collection. And if you notice, there are some things about this offering that are interesting. You've got, first of all, uh, a strictly voluntary offering. This is not a tax. This is not God saying, all right, all you people, bring me your stuff or else. Okay? That's what the IRS does, but that's not what God does. All right? Um, God isn't like that. He says this, take for me a contribution and look at who it's from. From every man who heart, whose heart moves him. So, in other words, just like in the New Testament where it says, uh, let each man give what he has decided in his heart to give, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, no one's holding your gun to your head. No one is uh, making you do this. But God is inviting people to give to him out of the response of their heart, out of the overflow of their heart, and out of their love for him. He says, Here's the offering that I need. And on top of that, what you'll see is that there is a a whole variety of stuff. You've got gold and silver and bronze, and you've got spices and oil and gemstones. There's also various kinds of cloth that are mentioned. Some of this cloth, by the way, is incredibly expensive. Uh, The the cloth, uh, the purple cloth in particular, was ridiculous. Uh, and the way it was made, there's a little shellfish that lives in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. And when you crush them, while they're still, they're, you kill them in the process, and a little bit of purple dye comes out of the, this process. And so to make one piece of fabric requires thousands of these jokers. Thousands of them. And so... Uh, this was very expensive. It was what royalty wore because it was an incredibly expensive process. Then you also had the red fabric, which was made by crushing these little worms. And uh, we went to Colonial Williamsburg a couple of years ago, and we saw some of these little worms that they had dried at the textile shop. They said, well, yeah, this is where all red dye comes from, you know, for fabric, or at least uh, classically speaking, and up to the up to the present day, where it's now from DuPont. But uh, in any case, uh, th- these little worms, they would mash, and then they, this red dye would come out, and they would dye red fabric. And that was also relatively expensive. But you've also got things at the other end of the spectrum, don't you? You've got acacia wood. Well, where does that come from? Well, there's a, acacia tree is a desert tree that just grows out in the Middle East, And so if you needed to make an offering of acacia wood to the Lord, because maybe you didn't have anything else, you could go out and chop down a tree and cut boards and bring them and make your offering. Uh, You also see things like um, ram skins and goat skins and goat hair. Well, where does that come from? Well, that comes from everybody's flocks that they've got running around. And so you've got a broad spectrum of stuff that's being offered. 
and, and people are offering according to what they have. If you were a very wealthy person, you probably gave things from one end of the spectrum. If you were a very poor person, maybe all you've got is some hairy goats. I got some hairy goats. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll shear them and I'll bring the hair and that will be my offering. But regardless, everybody gives the very best of what they have. Not what they don't have, but what they do have. And God receives it as their offering. The very best of what each person has, God accepts as their offering. And then in addition to that, here's another another thing to notice. Where did all of this stuff come from? Egypt, exactly. So, how did they get it? These are all slaves, right? How did they get it? They got it because God told them, when you leave Egypt, I'm going to move in the Egyptians such that they're going to give you 400 years of back wages for being in slavery. And when they left, every Israelite went to her neighbors and said, hey, the Lord tells me I'm supposed to ask you for some of your stuff because I need clothes and I need some things for the offering to the Lord and, uh, you know, we're leaving, so... Uh, let's see it. And they responded. They were eager to get rid of them. Oh, you need sheep? Fine. Here's some sheep. Get out of here. We're tired of the plagues. Okay, and they all leave. And they leave having, the scripture says, plundered the Egyptians, taken all this stuff. So who gave them the stuff that they were going to give to the Lord? Well, directly the Egyptians, but indirectly who gave it to them? The Lord did. And so God gave them the stuff, and then they're giving an offering to the Lord, right? Uh, I had my birthday uh, about a week ago or so, and I turned 41, for those who were curious. And, um, and my kids b- bought me a number of gifts. Primarily what they bought was candy. They bought <laughs> Dove chocolates and cherry sours and so forth, um, and, uh, and I richly enjoyed it, by the way. Um, I, I can't run far enough to burn all of that off yet, but nevertheless, uh, I enjoyed the blessing. Now, where did my kids get the money? From their allowance. Well, where did their allowance come from? From me, <laughs> right? So who bought the chocolate? Well, they did, but who bought the chocolate? I did. right because I had given them something and they used part of it to buy me a gift and and God's offering that he takes from the people works identically the same way he has already given them everything they have and they take a little portion of it and give it to him now I hope that the application on this is obvious But just in case it's not, the same principles still apply to giving today. Some of us are wealthy, some of us are not. But we give the best of what we have to the Lord. And we give not because we must, but because of the overflow of the heart from God 
uh, working in us and in gratitude to him for all he has done for us. Amen? And then in addition to that, where does it all come from to start with? From him. It's already all his to begin with. But he is pleased to provide for us and to accept from us offerings of things that he already owns as an act of worship to him. Amen? Um, All right. Well, let's look at some of these articles of the sanctuary that they're going to build. Uh, First is the Ark of the Covenant. And Sarah, if you could put that slide up, that'd be awesome. Okay? Um, This is a pretty good artist rendering out of the ESV Study Bible. Um, uh, If you buy one of those, they'll give you online access, and then you can get the artwork that you can use, which is cool. Um, But this is the Ark of the Covenant. Let me read, read to you about it from the Scripture. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Uh, you shall overlay it with, go- with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on, its, on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. And the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the ends of the, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall be the faces shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now, this is a pretty good illustration. I think they misplaced the feet on the bottom. Uh, there should be, some, should be a, a foot in each corner, and the poles should attach to those. But nevertheless, this is a pretty good rendering. Uh, what you have is a box about two feet uh, deep, uh, about two feet wide, and about four feet long. And the box is nothing magical about the box itself. Uh, it's not like Spielberg and, and uh, Raiders, okay? Uh, there's nothing magical about the box. But uh, what it represented was God's throne and God's presence. Because whenever you see God uh, uh, in a vision or whatever in the, in the uh, Old Testament, what you see is God seated on a throne above the cherubim, right? The cherubim are these multi-winged angels. Uh, they're probably the also they're probably equivalent to the four living creatures that Ezekiel saw, that John saw, that I think Isaiah describes in Isaiah six. 
these creatures with six wings that fly. And it says that they have two wings, they cover their face, and two they cover their feet, and with two they're flying. And one called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Amen? And, and so God is always depicted as seated on a throne above the cherubim. Now you'll notice as we go through all the furnishings of the, of the tabernacle, that there's no throne for God, and there's no depiction of Him. But he says, I will be seated above the cherubim, and there I will speak with you and talk to the people. That this, this box, the ark, represents the presence of God, and it was to be on poles for a very specific reason, and they were never to take them out. Because to touch the ark as anyone other than Moses was to die. In fact, there's a famous incident that happens when King David is trying to bring the ark into the city of Jerusalem. He's trying to bring it in there, and they put it on an ox cart. Now, how does God say to bring it? Carry it on the poles. And the ox cart is a brand new ox cart. They're taking it through, and, and it starts to tumble off the ox cart, and a guy named Uzzah reaches out to touch it, to stabilize it. And Uzzah is immediately struck dead as a result. Because to come into the presence of a holy God as a sinful person is to be struck immediately dead. But nevertheless, God wants to be in the presence of his people. And he wants to be with them. And he wants them to be near to him. And he says, there's some very special regulations about how you're to come into my presence. And you can't touch this thing. But inside it, they're going to put the Ark of the Testimony. Later, they're going to put also in it a pot of manna from the wilderness uh, and also Aaron's staff, his rod that buds. And the reason they put them in there is that they were all symbols of Israel's rebellion against God. And the idea was that the holiness of God, because these angels looked down at the box, that's how they're made. They face one another and they're looking down at the box. And the idea symbolically is that they are seeing the sin of the people because the, ta- the tablets of the testimony get broken right after this instruction is given. But they go into the box and, they, and God sees and His holy presence sees the sin of the people. But on top of the box, what's it called? The mercy seat. Why? Because once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, and only the high priest, is going to enter the sanctuary into the presence of God, and he's going to cover the the lid of that box with the blood of sacrifice. And when he does, the blood of sacrifice is going to cover the sin of the people. And then they will therefore receive mercy from the mercy seat of God's presence. So that's the Ark of the Covenant. That's what that's about. The next article is the, is the table for the bread of the presence. Uh, it says, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Uh, two cubits shall be its length and a cubit and, a, and its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall, make it, you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. You shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at the four legs. 
Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the table will be carried by these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. And you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Now, um, yeah, there we go. There's a good illustration. Uh, The bread represents God's provision for the nation. And it's out, uh, the ark is in what becomes the holy of holies, the most holy place. And this is an article that's on 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 the outside of that in the holy place. This is a place where the priest could go in and out before God. There's also going to be an altar of incense that gets described there. Also the golden lampstand that we're going to look at in a few minutes that's out there. But the bread of the presence represents that God being present with them is the God who provides for all of their needs. And symbolically speaking, the priests represented the whole nation. And they served continually before God. And they needed a snack. Real honestly, they needed a snack every now and then. They would get hungry as they were working. And how are they going to eat while they're working all day doing the sacrifices and so forth? God provided for that. He said, I'm going to make, you, I want you to make a table and put bread on it. So that when the consecrated priest comes in to serve before me, he can eat. Because I am the God who provides for all of your physical needs. And you are going to enter into my presence and in relationship with me, I'm going to provide for everything that you need. And did God do that for the nation? Yes. What did they have every morning? Bread on the ground. And God provided for them. And, and in relationship with him, he provides. Uh, and it's the, the, the bread of life is there in the presence of God. And then you've got another article, uh, the golden lampstand. Let's read about it for just a second. You will make a lampstand of pure gold, and the lampstand will be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there will be six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and the calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. And their calyxes and their branches shall be one piece with it, and the whole of the single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And you'll make seven lamps for it, and the lamp should be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays should be of pure gold, and they should be made with all the utensils out of a talent of pure gold, and see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown to you on the mountain. Now, when the tabernacle is fully put together, we haven't seen all of this yet, but when it's fully put together, there's all these coverings over it, ram skins and goat skins and sea cow skins and linen and all this and and inside of a tent when you put all these coverings over it what is it dark so what do you need 
lights, right? You need to be able to see what you're doing. And so the, the lamp served on the one hand a very practical purpose that the priests needed to be able to see what they were doing as they went into the presence of God. But it also symbolized a couple things. It symbolizes, first of all, that coming into God's presence is coming into the light. Remember Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And so to come into uh, to come into God's presence is to come into the light. But it also symbolizes life. And specifically the tree of life. There's this seven-branched almond tree that's there that they have made out of, this, out of all this gold. The talent of gold, by the way, is about 75 pounds, give or take a few ounces. Uh, so this is, this is a big, heavy thing. And... Um, and what you have on it is you have the central stem and you have these branches coming out of it. And it looks like an almond tree that is progressing from the bud to the flower to then at the end of the flower, there's the light of the almond that's there. As that thing burns, it looks like a little almond-shaped flame. And you have this tree that is the light that gives life. And the, tr- the tree of life is there in the presence of God. And, and so you have all this symbolism that's wrapped around being in the presence of God. Uh, if you want to look at it uh, in Revelation, what you see is this. Here's, in the book of Revelation, you see John draw a, a comparison between the New Jerusalem and the temple and the Garden of Eden. Uh, I mean, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, there's several explicit comparisons. Let me give you here some of them. There's a crystal sea. Okay, now people get confused on that. They think that that means that there's like water, you know, in a big ocean kind of a thing. But the sea is the name that is given to the wash basin from the temple. And this is the one, this one is made out of crystal. Why? Because the people of God have been purified and they no longer need to be cleansed. And in addition to that, um, there's no altar and there's no ark uh, because the last sacrifice is made by Christ and he is present not in a glory cloud but in person. And John also says, and there's no lamp or light there because the Lamb is the lamp. And the tree of life is there. And to be in the presence of God is to experience many of the things that the, that the Old Testament points to here in the tabernacle. And everything in the tabernacle is meant as a copy and a shadow of heavenly realities. Because over and over God says... See that you make this according to the pattern that you saw on the mountain. What is, where is Moses? He has entered into the glorious presence of God. So where is the pattern? In the presence of God. He is seeing things in God's presence that he is supposed to make a shadow and a copy of so that the people understand 
what it means to enter into the presence of God. Now, here's the thing about this passage. God is having all this stuff made specifically so that in the middle of all of the nation that he will dwell at the center of it and that they can come near to him and be in relationship with him. And you know what? That is still true. God still wants to be at the center of his people's lives and to have them draw near to him because he is drawing near to them. Uh, that's what these, all these descriptions in the scripture are all about. They're about the fulfillment and the, recogn- and, the, and the completion of God's plan to restore fallen human beings like you and me to living in his presence once again. Because we're not living in God's presence right now, are we? I mean, we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and that is far better than anybody in the Old Testament had. And yet... We are not yet dwelling in God's presence. But God's plan is for that specifically to happen. For Him to draw near to us and for us to draw near to Him in a new place where we will dwell with Him and we will be His people and He will be our God. And God is the God who is still pursuing people. He pursues people all the way through the Old Testament and wants to draw near to them and have them draw near to Him in worship. And He pursues people through Christ in the New Testament. He is still pursuing people today by His Holy Spirit who is active in the world to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment because He is still the God who wants us to draw near to Him and to eat from the tree of life and to be in His presence. To be in His presence. That's the goal. So what about you? What's your desire? Do you find your life's joy in drawing near to God? God's joy is to draw near to you and to bring you in relationship with Him. But what about you? Do you find your greatest joy in drawing near to God? Is that the relentless pursuit of your life? Is that the thing that you will never rest from? That somehow, some way, I grow closer to God today. Is walking in God's presence for you a joy? Or is it just a duty and a responsibility? Is your heart thrilled by the idea of entering into the presence of the God who loves you and first drew near to you? If not, or if it's been a long time since you last felt that way, can I encourage you with this thought that God loves you with an everlasting love. And He is still pursuing you and still longing to draw near to you and still chasing after you. Uh, C.S. Lewis had this great phrase. He called Him the Hound of Heaven. 
I love that. Have you ever hunted behind a beagle? You know, as long as he's got hot scent, boy, he's off to the races, right? And, and that is exactly how God is. He is relentless in pursuing us. He is pursuing his people all through the scriptures. He is pursuing us uh, through Christ. He is pursuing us by his Holy Spirit. He is pursuing you right now. A relationship with you. Uh, James chapter 4 says this. I'll conclude here. Chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your relentless pursuit of us, that you never give up, that you long to draw near to us and to be in relationship with us, not because we are wonderful, but because you are. Not because we are amazing or majestic, but because, Father, you are far more amazing and far more majestic than we can even imagine. And Father, we pray that we would draw near to you, that we would find our delight and our joy and our purpose and our meaning in life, not in the things of this world, but in the walk with you, where we understand how much you love us and therefore can't wait to be in your presence. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this point, we're going to take communion. And um, so if I can have those who are going to help us uh, come down to the front here.